Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast, where the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knutson, and... And me, Kelly Coyne. Our topic this week is gardening with California natives, specifically our reaction to a garden tour we took this weekend, this past weekend, this being April of 2016. Hello, Kelly. Well, hello, Eric. Fancy meeting you here. It's been a long time since we <laughs> talked amongst ourselves. On the podcast. We've had a string of guests. We do talk to our, each amongst ourselves when we're not on the radio. Yeah, well, it's not even a radio. Oh, I'm so old. It's like it's better than radio because you can listen to it whenever you want to. And there's no ads. And there's none of that really horrible music on the FM radio, right? <laughs> Anyways. Yes, it has been a long time. And I, I put actually out a uh, a podcast a few weeks ago saying I was going to go to every other week with the podcast. And I'm actually still waffling on that. I had kind of run out of guests, mm. but uh, we actually have some guests lined up now. So I might go back to once a week. We'll see how my schedule goes and permits. Mm. But uh, for now, I'm going to try to kick it out once a week. If not, every other week. I guess that's still non-committal. <laughs> Anyways, we went on a garden tour put on by the Theodore Payne Foundation, which promotes California natives and runs a nursery here in the Los Angeles area. Um, and I did a blog post about it. And um, any, well, first off, any thoughts about the garden tour in general, Kelly? What, what did you think of it? Well, I'd like to ask how I'm supposed to have coherent thoughts about the garden tour when the cats are being so cute. That's true. In the background, there are two sleeping cats, one of whom snores with little peeps. But... <laughs> We're in the um, recording studio slash Eric's office slash our quote-unquote media room slash guest room slash the only other room in our house other than our bedroom and living room. And... Uh, the cats have taken to it, and we have a couple of chairs in here that the cats like to nap on. So we have a cat in each chair. One cat is snoring. And you're distracted. It's so cute. Well, I'm facing them. You're not. That's true. Got my back to the cats. Mm. Anyway, and I've got chiggers. <laughs> That's right. You went out on a wilderness <laughs> sounds bad. trip. No, yeah, I was out in nature yesterday, and something bit me all over. I've got all these welts on me now that itch insanely bad. And I know they're not mosquito bites. I don't know what they are, but ah, oh, I'm sitting here with a lavender oil, and I just keep applying it and trying not to scratch. So between the chiggers and the cats, it's amazing I can form a coherent sentence. You're you saying, want me to talk about gardens. You're saying that I'm going to have to interview myself. <laughs> While I sit here and scratch. <laughs> you're, you're going to be the George Norrie of podcasting. Took us, were taking, I can take well, that Well, no, swipe, if I was right? George Norrie, I would just talk about irrelevant. Well, I am. Actually, I am being George yes, Norrie. You are. I'm talking you're... about what I want to exactly. talk about and not the subject. <laughs> Yeah. Anyways, some people will get that reference. <laughs> Anyways, all right, all right. back so, yes, to the native we went, plant. Yes, yes. so uh, the native plant tour is put together by uh, the Theodore Payne Foundation, which is our local native plant resource. And it's a great thing. It's been going on, I don't know how many years, uh, showing people that native plants can look good in a residential setting because they, uh, we're talking about California native plants here, and they have a 
undeserved reputation for being fussy um, and scraggy looking and ugly in the summer and things like that, which really, if you know your way around them, is not true. Yeah, and I, I think there is this ever mistaken impression that we live in a desert in coastal California. Now, there are deserts here. Mm -hmm. If you go east to Palm Springs and Joshua Tree, that's a desert. Los Angeles is not a desert. I need to say that over and over again. It's a uh, chaparral ecosystem. Yes, it is. Um, uh, and also oak woodlands back before we cut them all down. By definition, it's not a desert because yeah. it average. Now, of course, the weather's <laughs> been crazy. Yeah, we're we're getting more deserty with the lack of rainfall, but hopefully that's... It's, it's actually it's irregular rainfall is my understanding. That the actually, what's weird is the average rainfall is still hovering around where it has been for a long time, but it's just that some years have been very wet and then other years there's been hardly any rain at all. But the the point is that this is not a place where it's appropriate to throw down a lot of gravel and stick some cactuses every 20 feet. Although which, I don't, I would argue that that's not appropriate anywhere, not even in the desert states, but that is yes, what happens that's true. in you those You could probably places. do something... It's still, though, in in a desert, it's going to be the the, the plant spacing is going is to be wider in the wider. desert. Yes. yes, and and here with California natives, you can do something that that is fairly dense, actually, and at this time of year, quite beautiful, lots of flowers, almost almost English gardeny. I would say in terms of... A density. Density, right. Maybe not... As green. I mean, it's right. the, the color palette is different than an English garden. Uh, it's, we just don't have that kind of uh, emerald green lushness that comes with uh, intense rainfall. But um, you, 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 you do get... Uh, you can have an incredible variety of flowers and a lot of, a lot of bloom and a lot of different leaf texture. And it can all be tumbled together kind of in that English garden style, just in a different... Um, key. And I think that that's one of the important points that the Theodore Payne folks in the garden turret are trying to get across, that a garden of California natives does not have to look like a gravel moonscape. And I would just like to say, we were, we read a great talk at the Arroyo Seco Foundation's... um, It's the Hahamunga Nursery. It's the, the yes. The native plant nursery. uh, Sponsored by the Arroyo Seco Foundation. And, um, the manager of the nursery is a wonderful young man named Nicholas Hummingbird, and he, uh, at his talk, he mentioned two things which I think we need to keep in mind. One is that um, the California, California has more plant diversity than anywhere else in the country, except for Florida, I believe. We just have an amazing palette of plants to choose from. So to ignore that amazing palette, this kind of diver- ecological diversity that makes you know, biologists drool in favor of acres of gravel with an occasional agave is just sinful. And then the second thing he said was that only about 6 to 8% of that palette, of the amazing diverse palette of natives, are succulents or cacti. So you know, although there are ecosystems within California, as Eric said, that are all desert, um, and that's where the succulents and cacti would really want to live, it's, it, it is not, succulents and cacti are not 
our plants. Our plants are leafy plants. Or I, there are some cactuses and succulents here six in the Six to eight percent. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly, right. So if you have six to eight percent of succulents in your right. landscape, then yeah, that's probably about perfect. And that's actually... I have to say, kind of what we've got going on here. I've got some succulents. They're not necessarily, I've got a couple of natives. Um, and I have some non-native succulents. The prickly pear, of course. And we love bad. our the prickly right. pear. Um, but that's, you know, on the edges of things and in pots. And, yeah, they probably take up about 6% of our total plants. So we're doing and it the, right. There were nice examples in the tour of integrating cactuses with other plants that are you know, bushy or not. They're obviously not cactus, but mm-hmm. the cactuses, I, I noticed in a lot of these gardens formed a, a nice kind of tallish background. It's like a scaffolding or right. like, you know, you want in, in gardens, you want things that are sort of unchanging, uh, that, that'll stay the same because gardens, you know, like uh, leafy plants and flowering plants, like they'll be interesting at one moment and not as interesting when they're not blooming, or maybe they're deciduous, they'll drop all their leaves, and then they're a stick, and they're kind of invisible, or they're dormant uh, certain times of year, and they die back. Um, to have something that's upright and consistent, like a cactus is, is really handy just when you're trying to arrange uh, a landscape. So they, they certainly work very well that way. But they don't yeah, need to be standing alone in a circle of gravel. They can have um, flowering and leafy friends around them. I went off on this gravel rant, actually, in the blog post because we just had a the kind of the end of a water rebate, and there's a lot, and there's still politicians waving their hands around, telling everyone to cut their water off in residential areas, and it, it really makes me angry. Uh, there were two UC uh, scientists who wrote a, a white paper some time back that I'll link to in the show notes for this about how if we cut off every single bit of landscape irrigation, not just for residences, but for parks and businesses too, we would only save 4.5% of our and water in California. all of the water. And there's all these kinds of unintended consequences, uh, including dead trees that are falling over because people stop watering Which is them. expensive, and expensive, dangerous. Right. It's expensive to replace them. Yeah. Um, and, or, or, or just like the general, like, like exasperating the urban heat island effect by taking away uh, the plants, which even the laws, you know, as much as we don't like them because of their lack of biodiversity, do function to cool the city somewhat. I would rather have a lawn than no lawn. And then there were all these fly-by-night companies that were taking the rebate money and then installing terrible landscapes. Which were the aforementioned gravel with the occasional agave. Right, for quote, free, unquote. And then I don't think, I can take a swipe at Mayor Garcetti, right? He doesn't listen to this show. <laughs> he was he was waving his hands around saying, look at all the jobs I'm creating with these landscape companies. Landscape, quote unquote, which is like, you know, you know uneducated crews coming in and dumping gravel and, um, you know, uh, plastic on, on the ground. And, look at and all the water and the some- same and the jobs I'm creating. <sighs> and and so what we've ended up with are, are tons and tons of these gravel moonscapes here. And I think we've not been clear for our non our non-native non, listeners yeah. is that there was um you know there's this obviously we don't want to be wasteful with our water and our landscape and and um and lawns are one of the most thirsty plants that you can try to 
keep in a landscape, and they really don't have a place here um, in in dry this well, dry country for athletic fields. Well, and yeah, parks like, and it, like yeah, that, where or, they you know, are probably better than plastic, but they are you you just can't imagine how thirsty they are unless you try to keep them alive here. Um, well, and so we uh, so the the city gave um, rebates to people for taking long out their long, like, right, you know, right, so much right, a foot. First yeah. it was a dollar, then it was $2, right, then it was $3, right. and it became very profitable to remove your lawn at a certain point. And then, uh, so people were doing that just sort of willy-nilly, like, yeah, I'll take my lawn out. And then sometimes without plans for what they were going to do, it, it's a whole new, water-saving landscapes is a whole new vocabulary that people have to learn. And um, of course, there are landscapers that can help you with that, but that costs money. A lot of people don't have the money or choose not to prioritize their spending that way. So, well, these companies. Were, so there were these companies right. that took advantage of that ignorance. They would take the money and then install your landscape for, for free, free. and of course they would pad that so they would have a profit. So it doesn't cost much to dump a bunch of gravel and a couple of agaves in, and then they would skim off all the rest of the money, and that left us with a lot of landscapes that look like the worst parts of Phoenix. Exactly. And I, I think Beg my pardon, Phoenix. one of these companies had the gall to say, well, we don't maintain this, but if you have any questions, please call the Theodore Payne Foundation. So <laughs> they go out of and, the Theodore, and again, that's the Native Plant Foundation right. that runs on a shoestring and which never would have approved any of those landscapes. So they kept, they had to field a lot of confused uh, calls from people like, how do I work this drip irrigation system? <laughs> and anyway, so... But and all the, and I've noticed the ones I can see uh, around the neighborhood, uh, now the weeds are coming up through the plastic and gravel yeah, and it's the usual it's nightmare. The the good side though is I suspect some of those people uh, did contact Theodore Payne and maybe went on hopefully went on the the garden tour they did this uh, weekend which was uh, all over Los Angeles actually I think it was some fifty or so gardens spread out uh, east and west and actually north and south too and we were able to kind of cover the ones in the Pasadena area and our area. Uh, some of which were quite spectacular and others were modest, but they were all uh, good examples of how to work with California natives. And um, actually, some of them were not just California natives either. You, it's a, sort of a myth that once you have put in one native, you have to have all natives too. But Yeah, they, I mean, there are would, people who are a little bit strident about that, but natives can play nicely with non-natives. So there were examples of natives with edibles, with fruit trees and vegetables, so really couple very nice examples of that and then some where people were mixing mediterranean plants into like lavenders and other climate appropriate plants but i did a post where i looked at i uh, kind of pulled out what the, what the lessons i learned because i'm not a professional landscape person and i'm actually quite bad at it so it's it's good to to see what the professionals and some of the very advanced amateurs, I think I would say gardeners here, uh, it was kind of a mix of those two um, classes of folks. And one of the things I noticed actually, and one of the things that I know that's been a struggle in our own garden working with, with uh, not just with natives, but uh, especially with natives, is the spacing and getting, getting the spacing right. I think spacing is just always a problem, <laughs> no matter what kind of plant you're growing. Yeah. I uh, mean, I think people, there's always the temptation to 
plant too close, um, especially at the beginning when you're laying out the so landscape. It looks because good it looks so it looks good immediately. And that's yeah. what all of those fly by night garden shows do. Those like, you know, instant trans like, you know, the crew comes in and transforms the family's house overnight and then it's like, voila, here's your garden. Or cities great. do it with trees and cities, parks, yeah. we learned. They, they yeah, plant them way uh, too I think close. um and I think landscape professionals will say that they're under some pressure from their clients to have it look good from the very beginning. And that usually means spacing items too close. Uh, I guess you could be wasteful and space everything too closely and then go in and pull out half the plants later. Oh, no one seems to do that. Uh, so what you end up with is stuff really, really packed in close. Well, um, there's always going to be some editing because some plants either get freakishly large or don't make it. Yeah. And then later on you have to edit. Well, you always have, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, I always tend to think of a garden as frozen in time. But it's so It not. never is. So it's, it's always evolving. Hard, I think it's one of the hardest of the domestic arts because it is, um, it's not only like composition in three dimensions, but it's also composition in the fourth dimension in time. Uh, the variables are, are enormous. And I, and people who can, keep a good looking garden have my utmost respect because it is it, it's hard work it takes knowledge it takes experience it takes an eye it takes work you know so and, and most people are just like just just give me something that doesn't you know doesn't need work you know and yeah it's a hard you know there's a direct in, I, I don't want to say you have to slave over your... I there's, don't, there's always going to be work there, There's always garden. People say, oh, I want a maintenance-free landscape. It doesn't exist. They don't. It costs in some way. You know, like if you have just a lawn and some topiary bushes, maybe you don't spend that much time on it because well, you've got you a mowing broker. Well, you somebody yeah. to come and You have the crew come in and do to, use... Yeah. And they're using enormous resources and power tools. They're polluting with noise and exhaust. And it's also costing... The rest of the environment, it's like, it, you know, there's no wealth shared with the rest of the living world. It's a selfish landscape. So it's actually a very expensive landscape and a very, it's very costly. And people think, well, that's an easy landscape. That's a, that's a tidy landscape. And it's just, you know, it's a, I, I, I'll say it again, it's a very selfish landscape. Um, but I think there is like a, a middle ground where you can have a landscape that is not selfish um, and which is attractive, but doesn't um, you know doesn't cost you too much in time or effort. You know something with you know like uh, some nice mulch and then some uh, ground cover and shrubbery that's given space to spread uh, and treated well, not pruned ruthlessly or um, well you know, thoughtfully abused. pruned. I mean, you can prune, but I mean you know in the way the the grounds crews tend to hack everything down to squares and balls <laughs> you know like let the let the the plant take its natural shape prune it if you have to and you don't want to just make work i mean i think one thing like the 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 poor crews do to justify their pay is they they prune a lot to say look you need us to keep you know all of your shrubs in perfect shapes but like why do the shrubs need to be in a shape at all yeah, I will, but to get back to the point about the spacing in oh, the yeah, gardens, spacing. I think that <laughs> the some of these gardens were just spectacular, and the ones that I thought were the best really did kind of get that spacing right. And I think it's two things. It's one is the editing and maintenance, and acknowledging that there's editing and maintenance mm -hmm. in any garden, but also 
Theodore Payne actually is very good about on their plant labels of having suggested spacing. And it may not always be perfect, but in actually in our experience, it's usually been pretty close. Yeah, the in plants most can cases. surprise you. Sometimes they um sometimes they they uh exceed Well if they're getting water or something. Yeah, it depends on yeah. yeah, it depends on their their you know, their location and their water and stuff. But I it's try a to pay attention. starting point, though. I find when I don't pay attention to the yeah. tags, that's when I get in trouble. Like a toyon tree is always going to be, you know, probably at least 10 feet wide oh. or something like Unless that. Unless you prune it up. Unless you prune it up, right. Yeah. But it's so paying attention to that spacing initially is probably And a you good just idea. have to be patient. It might take the plant R- three years, really. Three years to get to these, its full size. Natives, yeah. uh, and you just have to, like, deal with that empty space until. It does, you know, but then when it does, it's good for a long time and it, and everything's comfortable looking in your yard and not all squished together. Speaking of comforting, another thing, uh, there were some very nice examples of, of hardscaping in uh, some of these gardens, one of which was mm. the creation of outdoor rooms, which is something I always forget. <laughs> and I kind of had a dumb a realization that, of course, every architect or landscape architect knows, which is that... Human beings don't like to be in giant open spaces. If you think about it, how how often do you go relax in the center of a football field? Well, people do like to go sit in the middle of the park. Yeah, and but sunbathe. Actu- but yeah. actually, I think people prefer to be under a tree, in a slightly enclosed space on a bench, something like that, but not just in a giant open field. At least I feel uncomfortable in a space like that. Yeah, no, I think people go for that for like special kind of festival occasions where you bring your blanket and you spread out. But That's different. Yeah, that's different. But generally, psychologically, I think it's good to have something at your back. uh, Exactly. And something over your head. Uh, You know, it doesn't have to be much, but that makes you feel cozy in your space. And we have... um, we do have in our yard, we have this tendency to keep everything at the edges and not in the middle, Yeah, you know, which is very amateurish. And even though I know, I mean, I've always known about outdoor spaces and outdoor rooms, I have a very hard time enacting them somehow in our landscape. I don't know why. It, I, I That was one of the things, the conclusions I came to. And I, I think it's the Loxton Clark Garden in Pasadena. Uh, I, actually, uh, if you, I'll link in our show notes to a post I did about this tour so you can see pictures because I realize this is a podcast. But if you, the, just as an aside, if you uh, Google Theodore Payne Foundation Garden Tour 2016, 2016 although they have, um, they have back previous ones, episodes, you know, episodes, issues, I don't know. They have, they have the previous years as well, and they're all great. Um, they have, multiple photos of each garden. So you can you can spend a lot of time just looking at gardens on those sites. But the point I want to make about this particular garden in terms of these outdoor spaces and these outdoor rooms is that the homeowner, I think, is the designer too. I don't think it's... Uh, she's an artist, I think. Is that correct? I think both of them do it. Yeah, um, anyway. And she's now one on the board of Theodore Payne, I That's believe. right. So she knows her the, stuff. The thing I really liked about this garden is that it was bold in terms of these spaces like she was not afraid to put not just one shed but there were i kind of lost four? count four or five you um, know it's a largest backyard but it's not huge it's not an estate or anything like that 
And she had one that was this very inviting, like I would call it a she shack, actually. It was, it was a bed with a tiny sink in it. But there was, yeah, there was one shack that was just had a bed in it, like for napping or whatever. <laughs> Thank you, Kelly. Have well, to maybe, put a it's, warning maybe it's on this for one. sleeping. Uh, maybe it's for sleeping on hot nights. I just yeah, thought of that. Or guests. Or guests. I mean, it didn't have a toilet, so I know the, but um, it had a sink. But it was mostly just a beautiful shed made out of like old found windows and stuff with a beautiful white bed right in the middle. It, was just, it really was sort of a dreamy, dreamy space. And it had many outdoor spaces for sitting too. There were many little nooks where, where you could sit down. And uh, all of these spaces were kind of enclosed by either little kind of found objects or by shrubbery or something like that and so like little pockets in the yard yeah she had broken it up into many many small spaces and i i think you know looking at our own backyard which is always a struggle i'm my conclusion is i just need to be bold and start building stuff yeah that doesn't scare you but i'm i'm just gonna build stuff (laughs) it scares me a little but we i mean i think hopefully we'll talk about it before you start building uh yeah i'll i'll do it in sketch up and let you review i i don't you know (laughs) <laughs> you got to be bold. Actually, and also, I, I want to stop by. There's a couple of Habitat for Your Humanity stores around here that have lots of interesting used things, not too expensive, mm. benefits charity too. So look for some objects that maybe we could incorporate to, to, to carve out the space a little more. Because mm. the problem is it's still too open back there. I mean, I think. it's a tiny yard. There's not that doesn't much matter. room. But see, but it doesn't matter. And it's actually not that tiny because the house is small. So our yard is actually larger than most of the yards on this block. But it's still it still not needs very to deep. be carved up. Oh, no, I'm not disagreeing yeah. at all. I'm just saying we we might have room for maybe two spaces, something it's, like that. Actually, if mm, you think about that, but think about mm. that yard, right? <laughs> the, the one I'm in the thinking tur. about how much space the bees take up. Well. <laughs> They need that. Actually, needs you want that carved up? One, it's partially walled off. It mm. needs to be totally. I need to do that. Mm. I need to put up another wall around it. Uh, again, in this interest, uh, not just of keeping people from getting stung, mm-hmm. but um, also in terms of breaking up the yard a bit into yeah. spaces. No, I, I I completely agree that we need to do this. I mean, again. This yard that we're talking about, this garden we're talking about, pretty bold in terms of not being afraid to carve it up. I think there's this feeling like, oh, my God, I, I'm going to ruin Versailles. I'm not going to have the vista of the, <laughs> the carved, <vista. laughs> you know, the, the, yeah. the cascading I, I don't know. fountain I think, vista I think, or whatever. you know, maybe because we're all raised with this basic, that, that basic lawn and bush sort of thing in your head. You well, know, that you'd think that a yard needs to be open. I guess in you have kids, it's like, well, they're going to need to play soccer back there. But that's also no, well, ridiculous, do too, that. because they're not mm-hmm. going to play soccer back there. And dogs don't really care as long as they have no. somewhere to lift their leg. You know, They want to run around under bushes, actually. Yeah, they like snuffling around. They don't need open space. You know, so, yeah. So, But that's this is obvious. This is a basic design 101 is breaking things up. But I think it, it bears repeating mm-hmm. because... Different but zones. Amateurs I think he, like us tend to forget it yeah, somehow. You kind of plop things around the edges. And, you know, again, she did, there were bold gestures. There were nice objects that she had collected and, and she had broken it up. You know, and up things and, like the furniture, you know, some of the furniture was like vintage furniture that was brightly painted. Lots of color, lots of texture. It had kind of a theme of um, Western sort of 
there were some you know highway sense. signs and things like that. Yeah, that you know, kind of tied been it all together. Sunset magazine, you know, yeah, it had that kind of western. It was it was happy, it was sunny. great. You know, it was really nice. Yeah. So, yeah. and I think also part of breaking stuff up into rooms requires a certain sort of living intimacy with your garden that some of us don't have if we you know, don't spend much time out there. We, we um, pack all of our work into just like, you know, one afternoon on a weekend because you need to actually know what goes on out there, especially in terms of the movement of the sun, uh, but in the breezes and um, if there's any mm, entertaining vistas that you hadn't cons- you know, considered, like, you know, do you want to have a place to sit where you can watch the bird feeder, uh, the bird bath, uh, um, where is a nice place to sit in the morning versus the afternoon? You know, when this tree blooms, it smells sweet. Do you want to be under it? Like all these things that change through time you need to think about. And I think that's what they were doing in that garden because there were so many different zones that you could hang out in. There was on their, they had a side yard. There's just a skinny little space. And there was a, like a chaise lounge lawn chair there with a little umbrella over it. So you could hang out in this little quiet side yard. I'm sure there's a time of day when it's really nice to sit out there and read a book. I don't know when that is, but it's there for them when that comes. Uh, there was a nice intervention. Uh, it was a um, it was a tractor seat mounted on a post. Oh, yeah, I noticed that and too. And it was under, was uh, nice. it was kind of under an orange tree. Yeah. You know, so maybe it's just a nice place to, it, you could use it to look at the, um, uh, their her food garden beds, I think. So maybe it's just a place to rest when you're Gardening, working on the food right. garden, mm-hmm. um, or a nice place to just enjoy the the orange blossoms. You know, just a little tiny thing can make a big difference in the livability and the enjoyability of the garden. Just just one little perch like that. It was well done, yeah. very well done. Actually, my I think my favorite of all the gardens. It was relentlessly tidy. I mean, I cannot. Oh, it was so clean. It was. They had very nice um, packed gravel or DG uh, walkways uh, that were just immaculately edged. Uh, And there was just, you know, no blur between the walkway and the uh, planting beds, which were mulched. It was, I mean, of course, there was a garden tour coming, so they were very uh, clean. Uh, But I kind of got the feeling they were pretty much like that even when there wasn't a garden tour. Yeah, except the nice thing, though, is it was neat but not sterile. It wasn't sterile. It wasn't pretentious. There was carved hedges and that kind of thing. No, no. Certainly not. It was very comfortable. It was just so, you know, all the plants looked good. Everything was tidy. It was like a gardener's dream of what you know your yard should look like and never quite looks like i think like. they've been there for many years actually it was it was featured in uh california bungalow magazine too I believe. <laughs> yeah so and it's been on the garden tour for many it. years yeah, they've too been at it so for they've a got long it time. dialed in they've been uh transitioning the yard from uh it was uh you know it had more of the traditional old school southern california plants in it like the bougainvillea and whatnot um and they've been transitioning that out bit by bit over the Switching years things over yeah it also had I, this is i want to move on to another thing uh, that was another feature of this garden is that it had a lot of clues that a human is there i think that's an, a nice thing particularly working with california natives to have little touches that say there's human beings here and that can be as simple as they had a little they had some little shrines there. There was a Virgin of Guadalupe. There was a little Buddha in a corner, things like that. Little pieces of art. Little pieces of art. and uh, Or like um, 
you know, wind chimes. Yeah, there, well, things that actually, hang from trees. I'm not a wind chime fan. I, I like. So, mm. There was a well. <laughs> I have the I have the Japanese bell on my shed. That doesn't bother nice. you. But a bell? No, the bell. I I can't hear it. That's why. But, <laughs> I didn't know that. It, yeah, that's it's. So it could, you know, when the wind blows, it just goes ting ting. Actually. Ting. Well, I wanted to say there was another garden that had bells hanging in a tree, which I thought was very nice. I, I, I think I prefer that to wind chimes is just because they don't make as much sound. Yeah. When, yeah, you know they can I mean? be a little aggressive. Right. Uh, Southern California is not very windy compared to other places. That's it's true. It's less of a we problem. We should note that. Yeah. Hardly ever is there a strong wind, at least where we are here. Uh, there was there was another garden we went to that had small bowls of water for wildlife. I thought that was nice. Very, very simple. Very thoughtful. Yeah, you don't have to go out and buy an expensive bird bath. You can just put a bowl out uh, and commit to keeping it. And full. there was a bowl and a stick actually. Yeah, for a the bird to roost perch, on. Yeah. Very very simple. Very 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 nice. Um, the there was another garden that had some extremely ambitious garden art, some large pieces of garden art, which I'm gonna write a blog post about this. I really liked the the aesthetic of this garden and yeah, the I use knew you of would. because yeah. I well, but you and I both, because we have these art backgrounds, get a little bit freaked snobby. out by some yes yeah, snobby that's that's the, <laughs> the word, word for is it snobby it's yeah <laughs> I mean, it's it's the art with the capital a problem that we have uh, around here but there let me just say i have some trouble with the whimsical it i mean we have a sense of humor but there's a certain kind of overly whimsical garden art that that and it tends to use use used materials that i just i just bothers bothers me i mean some whatever it's floats a, it's your a, boat it's right, its I own guess, aesthetic it's a kind it of is. you know homegrown um hippie-ish brightly colored recycled aesthetic which you know plays well maybe more up north <laughs> oh ouch don't <laughs> oh, go there yeah. do not no, go there but um no but people there are people who like it and bless them and yes, they may exactly. do that. We Whatever just won't be like doing that. that in our yard. Yes, I it's think fine. I. But that's what the problem, you know, is like if you're snobby and yet uh, not rich and somewhat lazy, then what do you do? Because it's hard to find stuff uh, that is attractive, um, you know, that's not um, original high priced art from high end artists. Uh, but there's there's the I I. I'm more comfortable with the whimsical um, homespun stuff than I am with the absolutely heinous, more commercial garden art, like the hideous, hideous statues. And we've written about this on oh, the blog in the gosh, past. They're so awful. The, they're just, the just hideous world of poorly done, just in terms yes. of execution. Like you know, they'll still have. Seams you mean the smiling on. children bronzes? Well, no, there's two. No, there's, there's two. That there's whole like world. the yeah, no, that's a second world. But I mean, like the <laughs> what you'll find at the garden center, the statues of maidens with. Urns and and uh, you know, frogs, frogs, mean, and they're right. well, no, like the maiden with the urn and the one breast in the toga, or the uh, oh, I don't know the. I you know I I would like the idea of having a Saint Francis garden in our statue, but I've never seen an attractive Saint Francis. Yes. His face is always all malformed, you know, or he looks like a wizard. It's just weird. It's all so weird and unattractive. I'm like, why can't they just make a good mold and make a couple of classy things? You know, off of one of the things, there's there's a lot of fine, fine classical work in museums that could be scanned 
Well, and that's happening replicated. actually. Yeah, that's that's a whole other. Well, it needs to get to the local garden yes. center because it's grim in there right now. The FYI to some budding entrepreneur out there, <laughs> if you can crack the uh, the bad garden art world and do something decent, I think there's. There's an opportunity there, and but then there's the the smiling children, which I just smiling have to bronze have a children's. If you look, there's at, the more expensive stuff. If you're yes. actually going to pay for bronze items for a yard, what do you get? You get those hyper realistic, like this. I oh, smiling statuary is so scary because you know it's like their face is caught in a rictus of pain for all time, and I can't stand that. But like you know. Um, children um children playing in a circle or whatever you have these frozen bronze dwarfs on your lawn it's it's just awful now i've i have offended everybody okay, yeah, we, we've offended everyone but i want to <laughs> go back to this very nice garden you know, on the tour that i think the owner is an artist i think or design person mm. of some kind it seemed obvious to mm. me that anyways they had used entirely scavenged materials i think or a lot of them anyways. and But it was very, very well done. And I, I was trying to put my finger on exactly why. And I remembered a... I took a lot of um, architectural history classes when I was an undergrad. And the one professor I had was, was always adamant that when you design something, especially like a house, but I think it applies to a garden too, it needs to be a place of comfort. And so if you have this goofy stuff or ugly things, I think it, it you know, again, it, it, a garden should be comforting. And um, I think that the pieces that this person had chosen on the tour were very beautiful, kind of simple, repetitive designs that were not whimsical, but they were thoughtful. There was a, they had another piece that was kind of like a bunch of little concrete houses little, little yeah they looked like um they were they i think they made them they must have made them or or got them from an artist um you know what monopoly houses look like very simple like an iconic house form with a pitched roof a rectangle with a pitched roof and these were about a foot long by a foot tall about maybe a little less than a foot tall uh, but they made a bunch of them. You know, they must have just made a mold and cast a bunch. It's good. Or good they use. were some kind of scavenged object. I don't know. Oh, maybe they could have been some sort of industrial, I, yeah. like, you know, part of a... F I, it could be some industrial they leftover. Them, they yeah. looked like little Monopoly houses, yep. though, but just in untreated concrete. And they had them in a... In a they organized in rows, like kind of a grid in a planting bed. And it, they just looked wonderful. It was nice. A kind of a commentary on suburbia. The city and suburbia. It was. It was cookie cutter houses, or was it invoking monopoly housing prices? And you could, yeah. you could, you could play with the meaning of that piece. It, it stood on its own as art, which was great. Which meaning that it had multiple levels of meaning. Yeah, to it. exactly. Which is a well. There we're getting into art theory. Let's yeah. let's skip that. But it was just just say it was well done, and uh, I'd like to see more of that kind of really nice garden art in our own gardens and public places and things like that. Uh, moving on, um, the other nice thing about the tour was that uh, you can, of course, integrate native plants and edible plants and medicinal mm. plants. And many native plants are also either edible or They're medicinal. They're all three. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And there were very many nice examples of that mm -hmm. on the tour. That's important because I, I there was I, I don't think this is the case so much anymore. But you know, twenty years ago, people thought, oh, if you have a native garden, it has to be only native plants. Mm -hmm. Which that's I I think people realize that that's not the case anymore. And in fact, 
as we've increased the number of native plants in our yard and decreased the amount of vegetables, I was thinking the other day that we actually might be getting more vegetables from a smaller space simply by virtue of all of the native plants around them, which serve to give habitat for beneficial insects. But also, I think when an insect lands here, they don't know where to go initially or something. You know what I mean? There's, oh, you there's, mean the... Um, the um, there's biodiversity in the yard. The unwanted insects. Yeah, the unwanted Are ones. confused by the great diversity. Exactly. Yes, that's true. I mean, if, you, if your entire yard is vegetable beds, then it's just like a big that's Vegas a buffet for, yes. you know, any insect that comes by. Yeah. So we've got a lot going on in there. And, and I think we should mention that we have been dialing back our vegetable. I mean, you just sort of said it, but we should say it because I don't think we've said it on the blog but it's been difficult with the drought to keep vegetables healthy and alive. And I've talked to other gardeners who are experiencing the same thing. You know, you're out there in the summer, in the heat of the summer, it's like you're out there every day watering. And you start to wonder, is this worth it? You know, why am I doing this? Also, um, because farmers are struggling too. So if you have favorite farmers at the farmer's market, maybe it's better to give up some of your uh, independence, you know, I grow everything at home, um, and, and support the farmers who are struggling and paying higher water prices and stuff and, and support them at the farmer's market because you know that they're doing it right and you want them to keep doing that and, and you know, retire some of the vegetable beds uh, and uh, grow some other things. And so that's what we've been doing in short. And so we don't have a lot in terms of vegetables anymore in our yard. We have a um, salad bed kind of. I mean, so you're, you're going to – Eric's been doing his, his great um, Frankenstein tomato project. So Grafting I think we're going to have a lot of tomatoes. Hopefully. But this spring we or this winter spring, we've had a big, huge lettuce bed that's giving us all of our greens and salad. And we always have our herb bed. Um, for that kind of stuff. And I've got some flower beds going for some medicinals. And then we have our wilds. We have a wild space where we threw down seeds to see what would happen. And we've been harvesting out of that space a bit too, but that's it. So it's not super intense with the vegetables anymore. And that actually, I feel better about that. And I'm inspired to plant even more natives as this drought seems to be doubling down on us. You know, our, we were all looking forward to this El Nino season this year and it didn't really pay off in terms of rainfall. Uh, and so, you know, this could be a 10-year drought. It could be permanent. I don't know. And it makes me just want to keep um, putting in natives because they're a way of saying, you know, yes, times are hard, but we can still be beautiful. You know, we can still be abundant. We can offer abundance to the world. We can offer richness to the world. They, these plants are made for this kind of climate. And they can live on very little water uh, and be gorgeous. So you know, let's let's just go that way. Let's not let's not fight that. Let's just go with that. And so, more and more natives. That's our plan. No, oh, I'll point out you have to water them to get them. Going. Of course, no one. But yeah, you get you, they have to stay, you, you invest in them to start them, uh, and and you have to do it right. You have to water them deeply to encourage them to have deep root systems. But if they get those deep root systems. Uh, they do really well on low water. So, yeah. meaning, I mean, some people don't, you know, some of them don't really need water at all, um, except for what they get from the sparse winter rains. Um, other people, especially in a landscape situation where you want things looking greener, longer and blooming longer, maybe people water their mature native landscapes like once a month, 
which, you know, compared to the usual watering schedule of a residential landscape is, is amazing. Uh, moving on, uh, maybe the final point, unless you have some more things to say. I had a bunch of open-ended questions, too, but mm-hmm. you discovered a universal aesthetic law on this tour, which is that <laughs> pots belong on shelves. On pedestals. Pedestals. I noticed that all the people in the know were putting their pots on pedestals. On so multi, like, you should say multi-leveled pedestals. Well, dep- not necessarily. I mean, there's some, I would see single pots. Um, you know, like someone would have like a kind of a, a rather large plant in a, a pot and it would be on a pedestal. Uh, but I also saw clusters of plants in pots on multi-level, uh, like multi-leveled platforms essentially to kind of play with it. And I'm like, oh, it's nice. You know, it's it like nice. if you have a, like an area of your patio with a cluster of pots on it like we do, you know, they do look kind of mm, dull just sort of sitting there like a little – like a little brood of chickens, I don't know, just kind of fall clustered there. You know, imagine them with some of them higher or lower. Uh, it makes them look like little, little art objects. Yeah, it, it's. Yeah, I think it's kind of taking a page out of the bonsai book. You know, that's what it reminded me of. The even though they were quite large, the big pots on an on a pedestal. When a pen, I don't mean by pedestal, I don't mean like um, I don't know, an art pedestal or whatever. But like they uh, depends on who, which household, but. You know, they some of they were homemade out of lumber, or it was concrete, or some just some sort of something that was lifting the plant higher. It also it takes the plant up more to your eye level, which is which is neat actually. Uh, and it sh- and it shows off if you've invested in a nice pot. Sometimes those pots become invisible under uh, draping foliage because we're taller than it, and we just look down. And you just see the plant. You don't see the beautiful pot. Mm-hmm. So it highlights the texture of the pot and the color of the pot it gets the plant closer to you and it and it says hey look at this plant this plant is beautiful in itself this plant is an object of art in itself admire it um, and it's it, it works really well so now i want to put everything on pedestals i, I agree that's <laughs> one of the things i'm going to do soon is a follow up on that well, that's that's again. It was a wonderful tour. Uh, the what were your open-ended questions that you mentioned? Well, I, I at the end of the blog post I did, I I put up all of these questions that I hope you'll write blog posts about oh, because no. our neighbor Laura uh, oh. came over and we had she went on the tour too. So we talked a lot about uh, our impressions of it. One of the things you already mentioned, which is the neatness of a landscape. Because she has, you know, relatives of tidy. who expect, yeah, something tidier than some California native gardens can look. So there was a question about that. Uh, that's a very difficult subject mm-hmm. and a lengthy subject to talk about. So that was one thing that, that we talked about. Then we talked also about, you know, how much gardening skill can you expect from a homeowner mm-hmm. who doesn't employ professionals to, to do this? So that's sort of a, how do you how do you do that education? And again, to put in a pits for Theodore Payne, they do classes that are quite Yeah, I good, mean, there's, so. I mean, this, both the, the, the city, different city agencies, like the water department, and, and a lot of folks are offering, offering classes. Some of them free, actually. A lot of them are free. You know, uh, there's Tree People, there's Theodore Payne, like every, you know, there's a lot of good intentioned um, private organizations and government agencies that are like, we will help you learn what you need to learn. Like I said before, there is a learning curve. It is it, what Southern California has to do, and maybe a lot of the rest of the country too, is learn a new way of gardening. 
Uh, and we've we've all been gardening kind of the same way, no matter what part of the country we live in. And that has to stop. We have to become regional specialists. We have to know our regional plants, and we have to appreciate them, and we have to work within that specialized vocabulary. And I know it's huge, and I know it's a lot to ask from people who are already very busy and stressed out with their own lives. And now it's like, oh, now I have to what learn about my yard. Like nobody wants to do that. But it's breaking my heart because I think it is the answer to so many problems. Yeah, and how do we communicate that, which I think is partly, I'm not just where we come in, but that's one of our jobs, I think, is to try to express this and communicate it. To show why it's important to put this time in, you know, for for the well-being of our cities, for the well-beings of all of the other living creatures around us, for the well-being of children and future generations, for the air quality, to to help ameliorate global warming, to save water. There's all these reasons why we just need to make a change in the basic way we do things. And it is kind of a rough road, but we have to do it. Um, but the, the good news is that it's it's so much better. It's so much more beautiful than what we had before you know so the end of the like the goal the goal is 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 fantastic we just need to find the wherewithal to get there well i think we we had mark lakeman on the podcast two episodes ago if you haven't listened to that i hope you will it's one of my favorite episodes of this this uh, podcast but I think at the neighborhood level, and it's not just California, of course, we're talking a lot about California natives, but of course it applies to everywhere. Mm-hmm. You can do this kind of gardening. I mean, even places that have uh, don't have water problems, yeah. everybody has biodiversity problems. Exactly. You know, so we need to work with that. And we need to stop using so much fossil fuel, and we need to sequester carbon. And these are all things that are done by having more natural native landscapes. But this is one of those things you can do on the neighborhood level. Get your neighbors together and work on these issues. Work on, you know, get someone in. Teach each other stuff. Find someone to teach a class at the garden level. Mm -hmm. Uh, excuse Excuse me, at the neighborhood level. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, like make over one, one house on the block or something and everybody pitches in to learn how to do it. Fruit. Yeah. Easy. And then the, suddenly the world's a different place. We want to try to do that in our own neighborhood. Yep. We would like we to do. try to do uh, something with, um, uh, helping our neighbors learn about better water management and encouraging people to water their trees because the trees are looking really sad around here. Yeah, that's a whole other one. We oh. should have a tree person on. Yeah. Anyways, um, that's all I have. I have to, uh. Get to the YMCA. <laughs> Eric's got his priorities. I have my priorities. Um, <laughs> but I, I do want to mention the website for the Theodore Payne Foundation is theodorepayne.org. And Kelly mentioned the Hahamanga Nursery, which is a new... It's the Hahamanga Cooperative Nursery, oh, I believe. Hahamanga Cooperative Nursery. The website there is arroyoseco.org slash nursery. Right, also, uh, they you have can a, Google it. The Hahamanga Cooperative Nursery also has a Facebook page, which is right. might be the best place to find information about them. All right. Well, to leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591. Or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. You can have the podcast automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes Store or on Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, please share this podcast in social media. You can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of the books on the right side of our website, which is rootsimple.com. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. 
Thank you for listening. Thank you.